So I, I, I have to start tonight with a bit of a confession. Um, I know that's kind of a weird, this is kind of a weird place to do it, but I, I don't feel like I can honestly preach to you guys if I don't get this off my chest. Um, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I hope you'll have some grace for me on it. Um, I, Freddie Ingle, 30-year-old man, husband of one wife, servant of Her Majesty's government, I'm a professional wrestling fan. <laughs> Mixture of reactions there. Better than I was expecting. I, I have been known, if I'm honest, to watch grown men and women in sparkly outfits pretend to fight. And it is amazing. <laughs> if in case you're doubting my credentials... Uh, uh, hold on, I'm having some issues with my tech. Let me try again. There we go, oh, too far. This is a picture of me on my wedding day. The man in the middle is the best man. That wasn't his title, that's just true. Um, that is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He was uh, brought by the former best man who he replaced when he came in the room. Um, and the last week was, was WrestleMania. It was the biggest show of the year. It's a seven and a half hour show, preceded the day before by a three hour show, and the day before that by a three hour show. I watched all of it. I sat on my sofa for hours upon hours whilst my wife rolled her eyes and did something adult. And the reason I'm, the reason I'm telling you this, apart from the fact that it's important that I'm honest and authentic with you, is because I actually think it's relevant to, to what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Because tonight I'm going to be talking about a story that we call the triumphal entry, which is quite a grand title. It's Jesus entering Jerusalem for the culmination of his ministry. The battle, the final battle is about to be fought. The players are coming to the pitch. The actors are coming on the stage. The fighters are in their corners. The game is about to begin. And if you've watched much sport, if you've been to much live sport, you'll know that there's always got to be a bit of an entrance. There's always got to be some way for them to get on the pitch, and they tend to try and make a bit of a thing of it. Whether it's football, whether it's darts, whether it's boxing... They've got, to, they've got to be some sort of entrance. And to be honest, most of them are rubbish. Like, footballs is terrible. They're just kind of doing this, or holding a mat, or walking on, looking really embarrassed. Boxing, I'll admit, has got some... Has got, I'll, give, I'll give some props to. That's pretty cool. That, that, is, that is Floyd Mayweather just being completely, completely over the top, and I love it. Um, so boxing's doing all right, but no one really does it as well as professional wrestling does. Professional wrestling understands entrances. Some of them, so honestly, some of them are the best part of the show. And I wanted to give you an example. I wanted to show you an example of what I think is a triumphal entry. In fact, I go so far as to say it's actually glorious. <laughs> Glorious. No, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. 
Professional wrestling is amazing, you guys. <laughs> it gives me goosebumps descending from on high, the robe, the crowd singing. I, t just in case you thought this was only Christians would get the symbolism of this, the top-rated YouTube comment for this is, his WrestleMania entrance should involve walking on water and healing the sick. Like, it's very clear what they're going for here. And, but this is an entrance. This is an entrance that shows people you are important. This shows people that you are impressive, and it shows people that you are worth paying attention to. Jesus' entrance, not, not so much. It's not quite like that. I'm going to show you what Jesus' entrance is like. If you've got a Bible, um, we're going to be looking at the Gospel according to Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Um, I'm going to put a video, uh, again, of that up on the screen, which will read the text. But if you've, if you've got a, a copy on you, if you've got it on your phone, it'll be worth having it open in front of you. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus! the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I'm just going to throw this out there. This lacks a little pageantry, you know? It, doesn't, it lacks a little kind of showmanship. It's kind of, you can't spell triumph without oomph, and there's not really any oomph. Um, you know, he's just kind of, he's coming in on a donkey, some ordinary bloke, some of his mates, he's missing something. And I think that's deliberate. I think we need to notice that, because I think it's important. I think we need to notice that there's something that doesn't feel entirely right in this passage. Because there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect, and I think that disconnect is actually a warning for us in this passage. For everyone here tonight, whether you worship God or not, I think there is a warning in this passage. 20 centuries later, it might not be entirely obvious what the warning is, so I don't expect it to be really clear. But it's there, and it's this. Jesus did not come to give you what you want. I'll say it again. Jesus did not come to give you what you want. The warning lies in the crowd that come to meet Jesus. Specifically, it seems to be a difference in what they think is going on versus what's actually going on. You see, the crowd seem to be expecting something grand. 
And I'm not just, I'm not just making that up. You saw in the video that they were waving these, these palm leaves around. Right? They're not just doing that for fans to keep cool. That's a deliberate thing, because palm leaves in the ancient world represented victory. They were symbols of victory. You would give them to, to athletes who were victorious at the games. You would use them as, as symbols of the, the gods of victory. And most importantly, you would use them at the return or the arrival of a conquering king. At the time Jesus was alive, Israel was part of the Roman Empire. They'd have these particular celebrations when a king or a general would come back victorious from war. They'd hold this thing called a triumph, which is where we get the word and is why it's called the triumphal entry. And we still do something like that today. Um, this is from 15 years ago, so I'm aware some people in this room won't remember this, which is so depressing to me, but is true. Um, this is from when England won the Rugby World Cup in 2003. Yeah. That was the last great success England sports had, to such an extent that you might have remembered reading in the papers or seeing in the news last year that we considered holding one of these because the England football team almost came third. <laughs> um, so we, start, we hold something like this today, but it's not, it's not quite as good. Just like food, architecture, and gladiators, we're just not as good at it as the Romans were. And I want to tell you a little bit of what a, what a Roman triumph is supposed to look like. There'd be this massive parade. The king, the general, would come on a chariot pulled by, pulled by four horses. He'd be wearing royal clothes. He'd be dressed in, in purple, often, which was a sign of royalty and victory. He'd be followed by his army. He'd be followed by literal wagons full of treasure and weapons and captives. There'd be statues and pieces of art that would symbolize the war that he's just won. Some of these processions were so long, they were actually longer than the road they were on, which, that's a mind-bender if I've ever heard one. And it, it, people would, there'd be music, there'd be incense, people would throw flowers. It would make New Year's Eve look like a dull meeting in a lift. These things would be awe-inspiring, impressive things. And the thing is, that's clearly what the crowd is expecting. Not necessarily exactly that. They probably had figured out by now that Jesus wasn't going to come with an army necessarily. But their expectation is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as a conquering king. You've got to understand, at this point in history, as I said, Israel is part of the Roman Empire. Jerusalem is part of the Roman Empire. This is not a happy relationship. This is not going well. There's numerous revolts. There's constant threat of rebellion. There's unrest. The people of Jerusalem do not like being under Roman rule. To give you a bit of an idea, um, if you go on the, the Wikipedia, top academia here, if you go on the Wikipedia timeline of Jerusalem, they have the period of 7 to 26 AD, which is just before the period that we're talking about, a few years before, described as, having re as being relatively free of revolt and bloodshed. Now, that might sound good, but I put it to you that if you went into a restaurant and on the menu it said that one item was relatively free of cockroaches you would have some questions. The key word is relatively. There's a lot, there is a lot in this period of unrest and revolt. And Jesus is actually questioned on that subject um, during his ministry. The citizens of Jerusalem are desperate for someone to come and forcibly remove the Romans from the city. And they think Jesus is that man. That's why they come out with palm leaves. That's why they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118, which is a psalm about deliverance from a surrounding enemy. 
That's why they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. There's very specific connotations with that phrase. David, he of and Goliath fame, was Israel's greatest warrior king. He conquered Israel's enemies, he conquered land, he expanded the kingdom of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem, sorry, of Israel. And these people are thinking, if anyone, if anyone can kick the Romans out, it's David. It's got to be David. And they know someone like him's coming. They know because they know the passage from 2 Samuel where God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They've been waiting for years for the son of David to come and to reestablish the kingdom of Israel by kicking the Romans out. They have hope that this Jesus is going to be this new David. They've heard stories of miracles. They know that God is with this man and he's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming. He's going to restore us. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to help us be what God wants us to be. The Jews are expecting a fighting Messiah. They're expecting Jesus to slay the Goliath of Rome and establish the throne of his kingdom on earth forever. They're expecting the start of a revolution. And here comes Jesus with a few mates on a donkey. He's not even on a horse. Like, there's no music, there's no symbols of victories, there's no royal clothing. There's his buddies and the ancient equivalent of every 17-year-old's first car. Like... There's no triumph. And what's weirdest about this is he could have done it. If Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time, the culmination of his ministry, he's won so many battles, so many spiritual battles over the last three years of his life. He could have brought symbols of all of them to Jerusalem. He could have had a literal angelic choir singing and playing instruments. The disciples could have come carrying blue cloth to symbolize the walking on water. He could have been followed by the number of people that he set free from demons, including the person who was so badly afflicted. There were so many demons that they called themselves legion. 5,000 people could have come with, that he'd fed with five loaves and two fish, carrying 12 baskets symbolizing the leftovers. And then 4,000 people could have followed from when he did it again. They could have come, then could have come the people that Jesus had healed. Peter's mother-in-law, the man born blind, the woman with the bleeding disorder, the paralytic who was lowered through the roof, numerous lepers and disabled people. And then on either side of him could have walked Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, two people that he raised, raised from the dead. He could have walked straight through Jerusalem, straight up to the temple, straight into the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was allowed to go, sat down, he could have proclaimed himself king of Israel, he could have removed the Romans with a snap of his fingers. And here comes Jesus, with some of his mates, and a donkey. <laughs> the donkey's actually a clue, I think. The donkey is, it lets us know where the crowd have got this one wrong. The start of the passage, you may remember from the video, Jesus specifically tells his disciples to go and get a donkey. They tell him to go and get a specific donkey. He doesn't say, go and get anything you can find that I can ride. He says, go and get this donkey. He could have asked for a horse. He could have found a horse in that village, especially if God himself had wanted there to be a horse in that village, 
and that's what he wanted to ride, there would have been a horse in that village. But that's not what he was after. He sends them to find a donkey. Why? Well, Matthew tells us it's to fulfill what was written by the prophet Zechariah. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophet goes on to say, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Donkeys are not a war animal. This guy is the only thing this guy is going to savage is a bag of carrots. Like, he's not going to do anyone any harm. They're not a charge straight at the enemy kind of animal. They're a carry children around Blackpool Beach kind of animal. Kings rode donkeys. Don't get me wrong. Kings in, uh, ancient kings would ride donkeys. It's not that that never happened. But they rode them specifically to show that they came in peace. Jesus rode into the city on a donkey because his intention was never to defeat the Romans, at least not the way the crowd wanted him to. The crowd didn't appear to recognize what this means. They're, they're cheering the conquering king, not the prince of peace. And they seem to believe that he was going to do something soon. Matthew goes on to say that when, he en- that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Another translation would be that the whole city was shaken. Expectation is bubbling. The storm is coming. The revolution is about to begin. And yet, four short days later, he'll be arrested. Day after that, he'll be crucified. He didn't remove the Romans from Jerusalem. Imagine, if you can, the disappointment that the people in that crowd must have felt when they heard of Jesus' arrest and death. They were living for what they believed God's promise to be, desperate for him to step in, to release his people from their oppressors, and to start the revolution. And he doesn't. And now we return to the warning I talked about earlier. Because God does step in. God did free his people from their oppressors, and God did start the revolution. He just didn't do it how they'd hoped he would. He actually did something far bigger, better, deeper. He lit a spark by being crucified. He started the fire by dying on that cross, and he fanned the flames by rising from the dead. He didn't come to bring a new war. He came to bring you peace. He didn't defeat the Romans. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. He didn't restore Jerusalem. He restored humanity. The tyranny of the Romans was was just a symptom of the disease that infects all of us. And Jesus came as the cure. He brought real spiritual freedom. He brought restoration to what humanity was always meant to be. He brought everlasting life. God himself walked into his own execution so that he could start a glorious, permanent revolution. Most revolutions, they just come back round. That's why they're called revolutions. That's not true, but it sounds good. (laughs) And the crowd, as he enters, have absolutely no idea. They think this is a new prophet walking amongst them. They say in the passage, this is a prophet. They think at best it's a new king. They don't think it's God. When Luke tells the same story about Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, he tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem he, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Here's the warning of this passage. Don't be like this crowd. The people are so desperate to see their tangible, immediate, earthly problems be solved, they miss the grander thing that Jesus has come to do. Please don't get me wrong. God is an extravagant, elaborate gift giver. I'm not trying to suggest that we don't ask God for gifts. Jesus talks a lot about how we should ask God for gifts. He loves giving good gifts, and Jesus says that he is our father, and he loves to provide for us. I'm not suggesting that, but what I am saying is we can get so caught up with the gifts that we miss the giver. And even worse than that is when we miss the giver because we've got caught up in a gift that we haven't received. So many of us can be like that. People, a lot of people who, who don't know God don't come to him for a variety of reasons. I'm not trying to generalize too much. But for, for many, it is because they know that God won't give them something that they want. They know that there is something that God won't let them have. They won't even, when it boils down to it, sometimes they won't even consider God because he won't let you sleep with whoever, spend your money on whatever, spend your time wherever. And they ignore the far greater thing that God does offer, which is so much more valuable because they're fixated on temporary insignificant stuff. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said that a person like that is like an ignorant child who wants, to, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. If you're just visiting here today, if you're just exploring faith here today, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Please focus on what, investigate what Jesus said he was offering. Jesus didn't come because you need to be more conservative. Jesus didn't come because you need to be more religious. He came to bring you back to who you were meant to be, a child of God and part of the greatest inheritance ever offered, total restoration and everlasting life. Focus on what Jesus wants to offer. It far outweighs anything else. But you know, Christians fall into this trap as well. If anything, we actually might fall for it even worse because we're meant to know better. So many Christians live their lives as if the gospel is that you'll get everything that you want. There's this sense of entitlement, I think, amongst Christians, I've noticed my age, um, that God will give everyone the perfect spouse, 2.4 children, a forever home, the career they want, and they'll tailor, he'll tailor all of that to fit their individual needs so that everything will feel perfect. And worse, they believe that God wants you to have that above and beyond anything else. Let me be clear, that's a false gospel. It's trash. Beyond trash, actually, it's a trap. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus did not come to just give you what you want. It's, it's so crucial we understand this as we head into Easter because when you believe the gospel is ultimately about you getting what you want, when you don't get what you want and you won't, one of two things will happen. The first is that you'll wallow in disappointment and you'll stop pressing into God because he's not 
giving you what you want. So many Christians live these up and down spiritual lives where you know, they're, they're up because God is, is faithful and he's going to give me this thing that I want and then he doesn't and so I'm down and I can't, I'm self-destructing and I can't cope with it anymore but then I'm starting to build hope again and he's going to fix it and everything's amazing and he hasn't and I'm down and up and over and over and over. And let me be clear, I'm not judging, I have been there. I've been that guy, I'm not, <laughs> we all fall into this. From July of about 2013, I couldn't get a job, I could not be paid to do anything in this town. It was ridiculous. I, I finally got a job after about a year and a half. And after about a couple of months of that, I realized that I hated it and that it was a bad environment and it was toxic. I, after six months, I realized I needed to leave. It took me three years. There was a five-year window in my life in my mid to, in my mid to late 20s when I'm supposed to be building my career where I, I had nothing. I had no idea what I was doing. It took me five years to get into a job that I actually want to be in. And I... It is hard. It is a roller coaster when you're applying for jobs. It is hard because you 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 get so many false dawns, right? I, I remember a period I was un, I was unemployed for nine months. I was I was fortunate enough that I was able to live at home with my parents. I know a lot of people can't do that, but I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. But it was horrible because you, you, there's days where you go and look for a job and you, you can't find anything that either you want to do or, in my case, that you can do. Or you go, oh, brilliant, I found a job that I like and I'm going to go for this and God is faithful and God is gracious and then you never hear back from them. And then you go up and then you get an interview and you think, yes, this one's going to be the one. God is blessing me with this and I'm going to have this job and then you don't get it. Up and down and up and down. And when, you've, when you think an interview's gone well, let me tell you from experience, when you think an interview's gone well, you have faith that can move mountains. When you don't get the job, your faith can't move you off the sofa. The second bad thing that happens when you believe this false gospel and you don't get what you want is you try to make it happen yourself. And friends, let me tell you, this is much worse. You end up being tempted to rely on yourself, so you go out and make it happen. And if you've got to compromise a little bit, who cares, right? You take a job that you know will be harmful for you, but it'll get you better up in your career, so it's worth doing, right? You you decide to be a bit less discerning in terms of uh, who you date, because you're not meeting anyone. You stop giving money back to God, because you're like, well, eventually I've got to buy a house, right? And ultimately, God wants to give me the things that will make me happy, Here's the thing. Compromise doesn't stop at a little. Compromise spreads. It's like gangrene. And before you know it, whole parts of your life are dead. Ultimately, what happens in Jerusalem is God's not working in their timeline, so they decide to make it happen themselves. And they, there is a proper rebellion. And it looks like it's going okay. And Coincidentally enough, or perhaps not, on this day, the 14th of April in 70 AD, the siege of Jerusalem starts because the Romans decide they've had enough. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. By the end of August, the Romans have burned down the temple and they've sacked the city. They will dash you to the ground 
and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. For the citizens of Jerusalem, it was the Roman. It was the Romans. It was freedom from them. For me, it was a career. For you, it might be something else. I don't know. It might be a relationship. It might be a house. It might be a country you want to live in. It might be healing. It might be deliverance. All of those are good things to pray for. But when you crave something and God hasn't given it to you and, and your hope in him is just dependent on whether you think you'll get that thing, what happens then? Can you even conceive of living your life without it? How will you react if God does not fix this for you? What will your relationship with God be like if he doesn't sort this? What will your life be like? Here's the thing. Jesus did not come to give you what you want. If you want to truly understand the gospel, if you want to get off the roller coaster of spiritual disappointment, if you want to keep the temptation of compromise at bay, I'm here to tell you what on this day will bring you peace. Jesus did not come to fix your problems. He came to fix you. Jesus came because humanity had chosen to separate itself from God. We decided that we wanted to put things other than God as our focus and our desire. Humanity gave itself to Satan, to sin, to death. We rejected what we were created to do. We rejected who we were created to be. We rejected our creator. We chose temporary over eternal. We chose evil over good. We chose death over life. We ran away from the safety and the light of home into the danger and the darkness because we thought we knew better. And Jesus came to find us and bring us back even at the cost of our life, his life, not our life, his life. He reached into the darkness to bring us back to the light. He was arrested so that we could be freed. He suffered and sacrificed so that we could come back into God's family. He made himself nothing so that we could receive everything. And that's so much better than any of the other things that we focus on. What Jesus came to do, what he came to actually do, what we'll be exploring for the rest of this Easter series on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday is so much bigger than any possible blessing that we could want on this earth. Anything we get here is dust and ash in comparison with what we receive in eternity. Because you see, one day, Jesus will return. There will be a second triumphal entry. When he returns, there will be palm leaves. There will be crowds singing to him, but they'll be from every nation, tribe, people, and language. He won't be on a donkey. He'll be on a white horse. He'll conquer the evil of this world. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. If I could invite the band back up, please. Jesus' entry to Jerusalem is the prelude to a revolution that continues to this day and will continue until he returns and finally overthrows the powers ruling the world and fully restores humans to what we were created to be. Jesus did not come to give you what you want. He came to start a revolution. The revolution will not give you a better love life, a better career, or a bigger house. 
The revolution will not give you whiter teeth, a faster car, or better performance in the gym. The revolution will not improve your stock portfolio. The revolution is not meant to fix your problems. Jesus' revolution restores humans into who they were meant to be. Sons and daughters of the living God, living in his presence and walking together to the new heaven and the new earth. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you sent your son. I thank you that he humbled himself to die on a cross so that you could restore us into relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that you are restoring us into who you created us to be. And Lord, we yearn for that day when you will bring a new heaven and a new earth and the old things will pass away. Amen.